I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no ominous and gibbous. And the Hello and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we'll be covering The White Sybil. Again, like, for some reason, every time we say The White Sybil, I want to make a scary noise, but it's not a scary <laughs> story. <laughs> like, there's no, there is, as you said last time, no dun-dun-dun. No. Like, it's, it's more like... Whoosh. Yeah, that's why it's more like... It's it's more like a maybe a Twilight Zone episode. I'm just I'm just imagining Tim in business meetings at, at his work, like trying to describe something he wants to get done. You're like, no, no, no. It's yeah, more like, so oh. Yeah. <laughs> no, you have it all wrong. It's not dun dun. It's <laughs> so the White Sibyl was not a Weird Tale story. It was submitted to Weird Tales, but never taken. And it was like, apparently. I'm having a little bit of a hard time finding the exact publication date, but I, I guess it was originally published in something called Fantasy Publications or, like, Science and Fantasy Publications, which the internet tells me it was a fanzine, basically. Uh. Um, and some – one source said it was published in 1935, but I think there – I found two or three that said it was actually published in 1934. Hmm. Uh, so I'm, we're, we're going with 1934 for our chronology. And it was in print – uh, along with another story called The Men of Avalon by D.H. Keller, um, which Lovecraft pooped on and said oh, it was really? really bad. Wow. Yeah, I saw in his in his letters that he had sent it off to Wright, and apparently Wright was fairly positive about it, which makes me just like... Yeah, but he never took it, which is, uh, you know, goes to show you. Or he also sent it off to this other guy, who I don't remember if that was the guy doing the fantasy thing or what, but... No, I think the second the second guy wasn't. Uh, it was ultimate stories, or yeah, was not unusual uh, stories. Was not it either? Hold on, I have the thing. Farnsworth wrong. <laughs> have have has? I mean, clearly that joke's been made before, right? <laughs> or no? No, I think this is history in the making. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is weird tales comedy <laughs> for the first time ever. You heard it first. <laughs> Farnsworth wrong. That's all like. <laughs> I don't know whatever. What were we talking about? I don't know. Oh yeah. So so this is this is exactly. I have exactly what Lovecraft said about the other tale. He called it mawkish and naive. Uh, and then he oh. said that the White Sibyl was a splendid specimen of Clark Ashtonic fantasy, which I think wow. is an awesome term. Yeah. Uh, but then apparently a year later, Mister Lovecraft downgraded his estimate. Uh, and told Barlow that the White Sybil is good, but hardly stands out among other... And then there's word, I don't even know if I know how to pronounce it, Cleric Ashtonia. He put, like, the word cleric at the front of C-A Ashtonia. So Cleric Ashtonia? Wow. Yeah. So there you go. Wow, I I guess he liked it when he first read it, and now he's just like, Maybe he just couldn't bring himself to, to, to criticize. Oh, 
It's t- yeah. <laughs> but really, I don't. Never mind. Let's just let's just get into this. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> so we have a reader for this episode. Yes. We'd like to thank Crow Girl Forty Two. Hopefully, she will come back and read for us again. And thanks for uh, reading the White Sybil for us. Tortha, the poet, with strange austral songs in his heart and the umber of high and heavy suns on his face, had come back to his native city of Serngoth, in Mutulan, by the Hyperborean Sea. Far had he wandered in the quest of that alien beauty which had fled always before him like the horizon. Beyond Camorium of the white numberless spires and beyond the marsh-grown jungles to the south of Camorium, he had floated on nameless rivers and had crossed the half-legendary realm of Tushow Volpanomi, upon whose diamond-sanded, ruby-graveled shore an ignescent ocean was said to beat forever with fiery spume. He had beheld many marvels, and things incredible to relate, the uncouthly carven gods of the south, to whom blood was spilt on sun-approaching towers, the plumes of the Huesim, which were many yards in length and were colored like pure flame the mailed monsters of the austral swamps, the proud argosies of Mu and Antilia, which moved by enchantment without oar or sail, the fuming peaks that were shaken perpetually by the struggles of imprisoned demons. But walking at noon on the streets of Serengoth, he met a stranger marvel than these. Idly, with no expectation of other than homely things, he beheld the white sibyl of Polarion. I'd like to start this discussion by saying that spume is probably one of the three grossest words (laughs) in the English language. (laughs) I agree. I will now end the discussion of the word spume so I never (laughs) have to say it again. There's another really weird word usage that he does later on. He talks about something that he calls a Uranian ecstasy. Oh yeah, I put that in the notes. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. The thing is... I looked up what Uranian means for, like, feelings and stuff. What, wait, shouldn't we talk about this after we get to the word? Okay, fine. We were talking <laughs> about words, and I was just going to throw that in. <laughs> it's a Uranian spume. <laughs> Ew. Gross. Now, wait, what does austral mean? Because he uses it twice here in this beginning. Austral swamps and austral songs. That's a good question. I assumed that it was kind of, like, astral, but... Of or relating to the southern hemisphere. Oh. Like, Australia. Huh. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, let me see if there's yeah. anything else that I can get from it, though. Yeah, generally, like, from the south. Huh. Southern. Australis. Migrant. There we go. Perhaps also related to Occidental. Huh. So Tortha, whose name is not nearly as good as Trigardis, and reminds me of, like, pasta for some reason. Um, <laughs> like Tortellini. Like Tortellini, dudes. He is a seeker. He's been out there. He's seen, seen stuff. He's been seeing stuff. Yeah. Um, but then he comes home, right? Because we can assume that, that Hyperborea is his home. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he sees this white sibyl. What is the white sibyl? That's a very good question. She's from Polar- Polarion, uh-huh. she, which is to the north and is now covered in ice, but used to be a thriving place that had commerce with Muthulon. She's white, like literally girl is white. Yeah. She has, um, and she wears beautiful white clothing that seems to be stainless and spotless. And she seems to come down with messages or visions or something to convey, but 
it's not entirely clear what happens. She just shows up in various places, and sometimes they say on the same day in in, the, in multiple cities yeah. that are miles and miles and miles apart, and gives messages and then leaves, and nobody bothers her. Nobody's going. Nobody follows her. Nobody anything. Sir, people are like afraid of her. Yeah, people yeah. are afraid of her. Yeah, she she. I like it when they talk about. Uh, there's like a Camorium shot out that she prophesied yeah. Camorium mm-hmm. strange doom. Yeah, um, in um in Satampra Zeros. I actually pulled up the passage. It says, uh, "Oh yeah, this is from Satampra Zeros." That the what is it called? The tale of Satampra Zeros. Uh, it says, "Now Camorium, as all the world knows, was deserted many hundred years ago because of the prophecy of the White Sibyl of Palerion, who foretold an undescribed and abominable doom for all mortal beings who should dare to tarry within its environs." And we already know what happened to Camorium with mm-hmm. Nagath and Zalm. Yeah, and there's also a question of how old she is. Right. She seems to be ageless and timeless, and her beauty is like the moon. So, she is she real? Nobody's sure. Yeah. Well, but he's he's obsessed. Yeah, he, like many Clark Ashton Smith heroes, he becomes obsessed with her uh, as a, but not even just as a woman, and this is where we, I guess, yeah. can get into Uranian. Like, he's sort of obsessed with her as an idea uh, and, like, can't get her out of his mind, just like Paul Tregardis couldn't get the crystal out of his mind, and et cetera, et cetera. But Ruth, mm-hmm. tell us, what do, what is this Uranian desire that he has, and what does it mean in this context? Because I can't figure... I mean, I looked up what the word means, but I can't figure out what he's trying to say. Yeah, I... So, Uranian was apparently used at a point to refer to feelings in men that were like those of women, oh. i.e., for other men, if that makes sense. So you weren't a homosexual, you were Uranian. You, you were possessed of these feelings that, despite being male, were like those of a female, and thus it was okay to be in love with other guys. What, what I didn't read, but, though, like, but didn't, didn't the usage change slightly in like the late 19th century, too? I didn't really read, to be honest, the whole Wikipedia on the word, but there was, I feel like there was a slight shift in that meaning, but I'm not sure if it, oh. if it shifted enough to change that core weirdness yeah. in this context you know so, so he's like obsessed with her like a lady would get with a fella yeah which i'm not really yeah but i don't um, understand why, like why use that word though that's what's so weird about it so like, i think what it is is it's um i i believe it had something to do with also with, with a a soul thing a, a psyche it was it was what your soul felt versus what your uh, loins felt. We'll so he doesn't want to bone her. He just wants to like listen to all the cool things she has to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, she's like when he sees her, he's done all this traveling and seen all these magnificent things. But once he sees her, that's what he's been. Ser- he realizes this is what I've been searching for this entire time, mm-hmm. encompassed in this revelation, this woman. And so he just starts. Wandering around hoping to see her again yeah. after he's seen her. And he tries he, keeping busy, copying over boyish manuscripts, trying to forget. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, like, again, I mean, I think I already said he was sort of a, like a quintessentially Clark Ashton Smithian character, but he is of the very emo yeah. mold of Clark Ashton Smith heroes, of guys who, like, aren't driven by anything except some sort of weird poetical emotion to be in love with the past or an unattainable ideal of some kind. But yeah, he, he wanders farther and farther out and I guess north, right? Towards yeah. Yeah. Valerion. Yeah. 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 Cause she disappeared and he's 
looking for her. And she hasn't come again. back, which, yeah. you know, it's okay because sometimes she doesn't come back, you know. Did she, did she, did she didn't, she doesn't prophesy anything when he sees her, does she? No. No, she's just walking. Yeah, but she does look at him knowingly. I'm wiggling Tim, my how, eyebrows how, right yeah, now. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you, <laughs> what's your knowing look, look like? Can you describe do, it for us? Yeah, I'm doing it right now. It's mainly just like a blank face stare and me wiggling my <laughs> eyebrows up and down. <laughs> it's like the way that Groucho March made sex eyes. Yes. <laughs> Groucho March. Groucho <laughs> Marks. People, come on. Come on. <laughs> Groucho Marks sex eyes are a thing I never need to hear again. <laughs> Groucho Marks sex I bet his spume was even funny. <laughs> That's Gross. my new uh, punk band, Groucho Marks sex eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh he gets up into the mountains yes and just, at some point he just starts heading out instead of just sort of wandering back and coming home he goes yeah so he gets into the mountains he's not going home this time he keeps heading north to see what he can find and if he can find her hail Diaphanous beneath the sun, a few cirrus clouds went floating idly toward the pinnacles, and the quarrying hawks flew oceanward on broad red wings. A perfume rich as temple incense rose from the blossoms whereon he had trampled. The light lay still and heavy upon him, dazzling his senses, and Tortha, a little weary from his climbing, grew faint for a moment with some strange vertigo. Recovering, he saw before him the white sibyl, who stood amid the flowers of blood-red and cerulean like a goddess of the snow attired in veils of moon-flame. Her pale eyes, pouring an icy rapture into his veins, regarded him enigmatically. With a gesture of her hand that was like the glimmering of light on inaccessible places, she beckoned him to follow as she turned and went upward along the slope above the meadow. Tortha had forgotten his fatigue, had forgotten all but the celestial beauty of the Sibyl. He did not question the enchantment that claimed him, the wild Uranian ecstasy that rose in his heart. He knew only that she had reappeared to him, had beckoned him, and he followed. So this this Uranian thing is really going to stick in my craw because yeah. it, what yeah. the hell is it supposed to mean? <laughs> I really yeah I really had a problem with it when I when I was reading this because I because I looked it up because I tried to find alternate definitions yeah. and I think we're just going to have to accept that it's a word that Smith was using in this case for a like a reckless passion. Yeah, I think that would be a good way of putting it. Like it's like um. a girlish passion, <laughs> like all that matters. Like this Oi. guy can't use his manly logic. He's he's just struck, <laughs> hysterical almost. This story is one of the stories that is like very prose poemy. Like his yeah. language here is it's 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 really beautiful. Like he does a, again a really dude knew how to write. Dude knew how to write. Yeah, as I can stumble out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> Which is cool. Like it, it's a very um, flowery and pretty description of of what happens. I love the snow attired in veils of moon flame. Because guys, what is moon flame? <laughs> right. I don't know, but it's white and it's burning hot. Yeah, and it's awesome. Beautiful. So he sees her, and he's all his Uranus gets all in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> 
That's... I'm out. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. Tim, what happens? <laughs> okay. So he's chasing her and she keeps leading him north and north until they get to the glaciers that are slowly, inexorably covering the continent. Um, like they, ice dragons. Yeah, and they run across, she runs across the glaciers. She like floats across it like a flickering flame and he's chasing after her. And this big snowstorm comes and he kind of loses her. He can see her in the distance and then he loses her. I have a question though, uh, that, or a thing to note, which is that the story reminds me very much of that Conan story, the Frost Giant's Daughter, where he's like, that's what it's called, right? Where he's chasing that woman across the, the, um, I don't know, I never waist. read I don't know, what's Conan? What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I'm I'm curious, like, which came first? And also, it would be interesting, there isn't necessarily anything to think about, like, the way that these two dude writers totally handled a very similar situation completely differently. I think it's called The Frost Giant's Daughter. I'm looking it up now. 1932. Or, actually, The Frost Giant's Daughter was probably published first. Yeah. Um, Oh, it's the earliest chronological story in terms of Conan's life. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's, like, chasing this girl with intent to sex her, which is uncomfortable, (laughs) and then she, like, leads him into an ambush. Also uncomfortable. Tim, do you think this, the Conan story is a slightly more accurate depiction of how women work? Uh, yeah, of course, because they lead you on with their sexes, and then they ambush you, and then you don't feel... It's always an ambush. And then you don't feel so good about yourself when it's over. (laughs) I wish you could you could see how I'm rubbing my temples right now. <laughs> yeah, that is a very different from a Smithian thing. And in a Lovecraftian thing, she would drive him mad. And a Smithian right. thing... I think in a Lovecraft thing, the dude wouldn't even chase the woman, right? He'd be like, what's in this book over here? Who is that? Who cares what that was? I'm, I'll be over here in this corner. Maybe in a Lovecraft thing, he'd chase her in a dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she'd turn and out she'd to be... And she'd be knowledge and stuff. Yeah, and she'd right. have a strange uh, rat with a man face. Right. Ooh. Now Tortha had climbed the fretted incline of the ice that crawled out from Polarion. He had gained the summit of the pass and would soon reach the open plateau beyond. But like a storm raised up by preterhuman sorcery, the snow was upon him now, in spectral swirls and blinding flurries. It came as with the ceaseless flight of soft, wide wings, the measureless coiling of vague and pallid dragons. For a time, he still discerned the sibyl as one sees the dim glowing of a sacred lamp through altar curtains that descend in some great temple. Then the snow thickened till he no longer saw the guiding gleam and knew not if he still wandered through the walled pass or was lost upon some bornless plain of perpetual winter. He fought for breath in the storm-stifled air. The clear white fire that had sustained him seemed to sink and fall in his icy limbs. The unearthly fervor and exultation died away, leaving a dark fatigue and ever-spreading numbness that rose through all his being. The bright image of the Sibyl was no more than a nameless star that fell with all else he had ever known or dreamed into gray forgetfulness. Before we talk about what happens after he falls into forgetfulness, I love this phrase, um, 
that he saw her as one sees the dim glowing of a sacred lamp through altar curtains that descend in some great temple. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's taking the snow and the ice and the Polar- and Polarian itself and the the creeping doom and making this her temple, which is a bit creepy. Yeah, you really get a, a like the the holy sense of this mm-hmm. woman, this thing, and then what happens? He goes to sleep. <laughs> the end. Yeah, the end. He dies. He goes to sleep and, and, and dies in a snowdrift. Yeah. Or does he? Whoa. No, he opens his eyes and he's in fairyland. Yeah, this part made me think of our our very first story, yeah. the end of the story, where he finds that alternate world underground and the Lamia in it. But in this case, <laughs> he's in a beautiful alternate world that's full of flowers and bunnies and is it explicitly fairyland in the story because i just I no. sort of read it as just no. like as almost jungle like like he yeah. was some, somehow in a in a land that was basically alive whereas hyperborea is is dying right um, yeah it made me think of earlier hyperborea really yeah which is jungly well just only because the um there's no sun there's just light right. everywhere yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. there's no source for the light and there's no shadows and no reflections like when he lives in the water yeah. there's no reflections it's called a fairy bank, too, that she sits on, a fairy right. bank of flowers. Yeah. But that could just be poetic. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's, like, looking at the sky, and it's all weird, and he's like, oh, this is crazy. And then um, he turns, and he sees her, and she beckons him, right? Or he just goes to her? He just approaches her with timid yeah. steps and eyes that faltered before her mystic beauty. But she's not it, She's not a lamia, which is nice now, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> Of all that followed, much was forgotten afterwards by Tortha. It was like a light too radiant to be endured, a thought that eluded conception through surpassing strangeness. It was real beyond all that men deem reality, and yet it seemed to Tortha that he, the Sibyl, and all that surrounded them were part of an after-image on the deserts of time, that he was poised insecurely above life and death in some bright, fragile bower of dreams. He thought that the Sibyl greeted him in thrilling, mellifluous words of a tongue that he knew well but had never heard. Her tones filled him with an ecstasy near to pain. He sat beside her on the fairy bank and she told him many things, divine, stupendous, perilous things, dire as the secret of life, sweet as the lore of oblivion, strange and immemorable as the lost knowledge of sleep. But she did not tell him her name, nor the secret of her essence, and still he knew not if she were ghost or woman, goddess or spirit. Something there was in her speech of time and its mystery, something of that which lies forever beyond time, something of the grey shadow of doom that waits upon world and sun, something of love that pursues an elusive, perishing fire, of death, the soil from which all flowers spring, of life that is a mirage on the frozen void. There's a lot of cool stuff. This is my favorite passage in this story because it's awesome. And also, is she talking about Ubusathla? <laughs> right? Because that's how he describes the beginning of time. Yeah. Ubusathla is gray, right? And he uses the same... I mean, 
probably it's not literally Ubusafla, but right. there's certainly certainly a um, a similar idea of like this knowledge beyond time yeah. that is throughout all time. She's laying it all out. Uh, it's great language, though. I love death, the soil from which all flowers spring, and life that is a mirage on the frozen void, yeah. which is like, it's, it's like, it is great because it's like, it makes death into a hopeful thing and life into like kind of a horrible, empty thing. It's yeah. pretty like. Well, yeah, because death lasts yeah. forever. Life lasts, yeah, you know. Yeah. A little while. <laughs> it's there, and then it's gone. But death is yeah. everything. And the sweet lore of oblivion, which yeah. is an awesome and totally metal thing to say. <laughs> there was another great thing in the beginning that I forgot to bring up when he was talking about her beauty, where he, he compares her beauty with the far doom of worlds. <laughs> it's so <Yeah>. great. <laughs> she, this part, that part makes me think of Galadriel, that, that great yeah, scene right. when she talks about... Uh, what she would do if she had the ring. She would make everyone love her. Yes, and despair. So for a while, Tortha is just like listening to this shit. He's like, yeah, lady, it's totally metal and I'm totally into it right now. He's uh, a poet. Yeah, he's like, this is awesome. This is It's Polarian, baby. It's White Sybil. I'm here. I'm doing it. <laughs> let's, let's make this last forever. But then Tim and Ruth, what does he do? He makes a, yeah, he makes a rookie mistake. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, this stuff you're saying, awesome, but can we care a thing. little? He doesn't even say that, though. He no, just tells her he loves her, yeah. which is even more of a rookie mistake. Yeah. I don't know why it's a rookie mistake. I just think it's a funny thing to say about, about like, you know, next time you're in the presence of what might be some kind of deity, don't tell don't. it that you love it. <laughs> or at least not in a romantic way. Yeah. Yeah. Make it more Uranian next time. <laughs> So then she kisses his forehead, which, okay, maybe that, that, that's not necessarily, but then he tries to hold her, and that's when it all uh, goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah, then she, he, when he hugs her, oh, it's such a good scene, too, because he hugs her, and first she's like a, you know, like a woman. Then when he hugs her, she feels like a corpse, like a cold, frozen corpse, and then she feels like some kind of monster, and then she's gone. And when she disappears, the world just sort of rots and vanishes around her, and it's all gone too. Yeah, and it feels like he he falls from a great height, like he's he's like falling from the sky. It was a timeless instant. Then he's dead, right? He just lies there, dead. No snow. He no. falls. He's found face down in a in the snow. Tortha had been seen by the half-savage people of the mountains as he disappeared in the sudden storm that had come mysteriously from Pilarion. Later, when the blinding flurries had died down, they found him lying on the glacier. They tended him with rough care and uncouth skill, marveling much at the white mark that had been imprinted like a fiery brand on his sunswart brow. The flesh was seared deeply, and the mark was shaped like the pressure of lips, but they could not know that the never-fading mark had been left by the kiss of the white sibyl. Slowly, Tortha won back to some measure of his former strength, but ever afterward there was a cloudy dimness in his mind, a blur of unresolving shadow, like the dazzlement in eyes that had looked on some insupportable light. Among those who tended him was a pale maiden, not uncomely, and Tortha took her for the sibyl in the darkness that had come upon him. The maiden's name was Ilara, and Tortha loved her in his delusion, and forgetful of his kin and his friends in Cern Goth, 
he dwelt with the mountain people thereafter, taking Ilara to wife and making the songs of the little tribe. For the most part, he was happy in his belief that the Sibyl had returned to him, and Ilara in her way was content, being not the first of mortal women whose lover had remained faithful to a divine illusion. <laughs> That's... Oh, that 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 hurts. I wrote burn at the end. Yeah, right. What does yeah. this mean? Uh, making the songs of the little tribe. Does that mean boning? Like, what does I, that mean? Oh. I think he's a poet. Yeah, he that's was what I probably thought. writing them little songs for hunting right. and songs about their great warriors. But it's, it sounds like a turn of phrase that we should know. I don't know. I think he's just writing their their songs because we assume they're a little tribe, and so they sing little happy songs. Yeah, he's like their bard songs. Look, I think it's sex. Let's just... <laughs> <laughs> I think he he becomes like the bard of the town. Because he's kind of like a dummy yeah. now. Like he kind yeah. of... Right. Yeah, yeah. His, his brain's got all messed up. So all he can do is do make little songs. Yeah. And it's... Maybe it's not a bad life. I I feel simultaneously happy and sad for the wife. Because I, I kind of get what he's trying to talk about. Which is that people who fall in love often have illusions yeah. about the person that they're in love with. And it, it's not so bad when your spouse never gets disillusioned. Although if he calls her your white sibilness right. all the time, that would just be awkward. But, you know, thinking that you've fallen in love with somebody who's really, really awesomer than they are. It, it, it doesn't have to be a bad marriage. I don't think. Yeah. I don't think so either. She's okay with it. So I'm okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't say she was miserable. So that's no, nice. she was content. I, I liked the story more the second time I read it, mostly because of the language. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I, I do kind of think it's a little bit of a... I would definitely call it a lesser work. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's kind oh. of a rehash of of some of the other stories that we've read. Yeah, it's very... It's like very... Uh, yeah, quintessentially Clark Ashton Smith. There is actually... There's an alternate ending to this story, which is the original ending that he wrote, which I will read, although uh, it doesn't really add or subtract anything from the story, and I think... That the published version, which is the version we just read, is better. But So this is the original final paragraph to the story. Slowly, Tortha won back to some measure of his former strength. But ever afterward, there was a cloudy dimness in his mind, a blur of unresolving shadow like the dazzlement in eyes that have looked on some insupportable light. Never again did he behold the Sibyl, and never was he able to recall wholly the things that had happened to him, or which he had dreamt as he lay unconscious on the drear threshold of Polarion. And yet the memory, vague, imperfect, broken, was more to him than the memory of a thousand suns in the great darkness that had come upon his days. That's the original ending. I like this other ending better because it's has a little it like reattaches it back to like man and woman issues in some right. sense, which kind of I don't know, just feels like a better ending to me than that, which is just a little bit like and then he woke up and, and he had some memories. Yeah. Lost in his own memories, yeah. Yeah. And I have the, um, in the black book of, uh, Clark Ashen Smith, I'm not going to read it out, but he has like his notes for the story, which you can find on Eldritch Dark. Um, mm -hmm. but it's, it, it makes the story seem a little more, uh, prosaic. Like if you read this little synopsis, you probably wouldn't read the story, but I think it's worth it to read the story just to, yeah. just yeah, because yeah. of the language that he uses. Yeah. And if you need the names of like heavy metal songs, yes. uh, <laughs> or a band name, you could do worse than look in the white sibyl for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, we didn't say that what a sibyl actually is because it, it's a, it's a prophetess or a seeress. 
Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. So this, uh, in the timeline of Hyperborea, this story takes place, it's still before the doom of Camorium, right? Uh, yeah. I, well, no, maybe. I, don't, I was a little bit vague question. on that because I couldn't tell by the language if the doom of Camorium had already happened and right. she had predicted it correctly or if it was going to happen. Or maybe that the writer of the story knew what the doom was, but the people in the book in the story didn't know. Yeah. Well, it says... Because he's in Sterngoth, and we don't really know as much about where that is as compared to the other cities. In the beginning, a few paragraphs in, um, and in Great Camorium, then the capital, she had prophesied a stranger doom that was to befall this city long oh, yes. before the encroachment of the ice. Men feared her everywhere as a messenger of unknown outland gods. I still think um, that's a little bit vague. Like, so it she, is. Because she could have been there, and then the doom could have happened. Right. But I guess it depends on how long a white sibyl lives. Which, also, what if she's not human, or if she's somehow sustained by things? We don't even know what she is or where she is. Is she? Is it a spaceship that she lives up in the space? <laughs> I think it's safe to assume that it is a spaceship. I think so. Because uh, what else could it be? <laughs> Hyperborea has had such a wide variance. Yeah. Of stories, mm-hmm. I mean, Atlantis kind of did too, but it was it was such a short setting. But um, I mean, we've really been all over the map. Like we've I love got it. present day stuff. We've got like weird adventure stories. Mm-hmm. We've got this like sort of romantical prose poem. We're really we're really just taking it all in. <laughs> yes, and next week we're going to be doing the seven geeses or geeses or I think geeses geeses the seven pronunciation arguments. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the seven ways to say G-E-A-S-E-S. <laughs> and we'll have a guest for that episode, right? Yes, we will. We should be having Jason Thompson back. Yay. And I'm excited about episode. that. Yeah, me yeah. too. It's a one and it's one that I think a lot of people have, have let us know that they're looking forward to as well. So looking forward to that. Yeah. And um, thanks to our reader. Uh, yes. If you want to follow her on Twitter... She's Crow Girl Forty Two, so yes, give her a follow. Yep, she likes weird fiction and archives. Yeah. What more do you need to know? That's all I need to know. <laughs> That's the way Sybil, folks. We only have three <laughs> stories left in Hyperborea, so oh, count them down. Gonna be good ones. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. They're all good ones, yeah. Oh, and also just a shout out to our previous reader, Joe Scalora. He's actually been reading for the HP Podcraft guys, too. So I'm sure most people who listen to us probably listen to the HP Podcraft, but he's doing the death of help and Frasier for them. And it's good. It's good stuff. Hooray! (laughs) And now to Polaria. Ooh. <laughs>